If you uh, have your Bible, I would uh, invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9, and we will be reading verses 1 through 7. All right, Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask, O God, that you would give us ears to hear, that we may pay special attention to the preaching of your word. We ask, O God, that you be with this, your servant, that uh, the words that are spoken today are true, that we would understand your word rightly, and that we may see Jesus today, that we may be comforted by your gospel, and that we may have great hope in the redemption that is found only in him. And we ask all this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, um, we're taking obviously a little break from our study in Genesis um, in focusing on the incarnation uh, of our Savior Jesus. Now, as we've looked in our study of Genesis, though, uh, we've been introduced over and over again to the promises of God. And so this actually really fits well with what we've been already looking at there. Uh, The covenant that God made with His chosen people, He promised their redemption and reconciliation. Because mankind has been weighed down, as it were, with sin and misery. And so was to be saved by a Redeemer. These promises of the Messiah are seen, though, in the Old Testament in shadow form. But we see them from the very beginning. And we have seen them as we've studied Genesis. Immediately after Adam fell, and when he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he plunged all of creation into an estate of sin and misery. 
while in the midst, though, of uttering, of God uttering his curse upon creation, and particularly in this case, upon the serpent, the Lord made this amazing promise, a promise of, of a seed who would come and crush the serpent's head. This, of course, is known as the Proto-Evangelum, or the first gospel. The good news of that gospel is that there is hope for this sin-stricken world. A seed of a woman would come and crush that power of sin. And so, from the very beginning, immediately after the fall, God had promised for His people a Savior who would rescue them. Later, as we have seen, God would make a covenant with Abraham, promising him, among other things, that he would make from him a great nation, and that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. The same promise, of course, has been repeated to Isaac and to Jacob as well. And that same promise would be known to all of the children of Israel, the twelve tribes which descend from Jacob. We fast forward in time to the time of the Exodus. Moses is leading the nation out of slavery in Egypt. This redemption from Egyptian slavery is a prototype of the redemption which is found in Christ Jesus. Just as Moses had mediated between God and man and led the people out of slavery to Pharaoh, so Christ leads his covenant people out of slavery to sin. This connection to a promised one to come is made also by none other than Moses himself, who says in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you are to listen. Of course, who is Moses speaking of? He's speaking of Christ who would come. This prophet was no ordinary prophet. He was to speak for the Lord, but his ministry would be like that of Moses. But he will be greater than Moses. He will have the form, uh, he will form himself, uh, he he will be a prophet himself of the word from the Lord, and he will set his people free. And finally, as the nation finds itself in the land of Canaan, this promised inheritance that had been given to Abraham, they're finally in that land, and then from that there arose a great king who was established by God. Of course, we're speaking of the great poet-warrior of Israel, David. Of David, it said, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so this promised one who would come to set God's people free would rule over them as their great and mighty king, a king which is greater than David. This covenant promise was for a Messiah, a Savior, who would come through the house of David, in the line of David, a priest king, as we would see in Psalm 110. And so these covenant promises of the Old Testament, these are repeated over and over and over again throughout the Scriptures. These form something of the, of the fabric of national and religious identity of Israel. They understood these promises of this one who would come. And so the people of God were in full expectation of this promised Savior who would come and set them free from tyranny, 
who would speak the word of the Lord to them, who would rule and defend them as their great king. And so, as we come now to our present text in Isaiah, we come to a people who we see are hurting. They are under tyranny. There are people living in a time of great national distress. But the people are hopeful. But that hope was beginning to dim. And during the time of Isaiah's prophecy, King Ahaz is on the throne of David. He is the one ruling over the southern kingdom of Judah. In 2 Kings chapter 16, this is what it says about Ahaz. It says that he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed male and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And so this is who's king. Ahaz is a wicked king. He's, he does despicable things. And so the line and the house of David have fallen under hard times. Far from being a righteous king who may rescue the people, Ahaz is so wicked. He burned his own son as an offering. And this is bad. He's not faithful to the Lord. He's doing deplorable things. Additionally, though, Not only do they have a wicked king on the throne, but during this time, Judah is being threatened externally, first of all, by the Assyrian Empire, who is seeking to expand. They're on their radar. But also we see, if we we go back to Isaiah in chapter 7, we read that the king of Syria and the king of Israel, that is the northern kingdom, they had formed an alliance, and they were going to come out against against Judah. And this, it says, caused the heart of Ahaz and the people to shake as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They are afraid. And so Ahaz and the people of Judah are in a panic. Because the nations are coming out against them. And even their own brothers are against them. And so Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is in danger of being besieged. And so Isaiah, the prophet, goes to Ahaz and he presents him with a choice. He can either trust in the Lord who protects and provides or he can choose to use worldly wisdom and worldly power to attempt to protect himself and the throne in which he sits on. And so here's the deal. The situation in Israel while Isaiah is writing is absolutely hopeless. It's hopeless. Once again, we find the promises of God seemingly being threatened by the providences of God. It's a theme we've seen throughout Genesis, isn't it? Again, God's promises seem to be threatened. Oh no, the nation might be destroyed. What's God going to do without His people? Ahaz is a wicked and foolish king, and it looks like he might bring the nation to utter ruin. And it is here, though, that we see this portion of Isaiah reaching its climax. Because in the place of an unfaithful monarch whose short-sighted defensive policies would plunge the nation 
into greater ruin, there is lifted up this idea of a new and greater monarch. A child who would be born. A child who would be great. So that's the context of this prophecy. It is then that the Lord through his prophet Isaiah, instructs Ahaz, this wicked king, to ask for a sign. A sign which would confirm his own faith in God and allow God to prove his covenant faithfulness to him as the representative of the covenant people. But what does Ahaz do? Well, he refuses. He refuses to ask for a sign, feigning some sort of spiritual maturity, which we obviously know isn't the case. He says he would not put the Lord God to the test. Well, the Lord told him to do this, but he refuses. Nevertheless, God would provide a sign anyway. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the sign would be a son born of a virgin who would be called God with us. And so this is the background. So let's jump ahead again, or back, I should say, to Isaiah chapter 9, uh, the text we're going to actually be looking at. And where we read of the dark gloom of the people. And with that context, you understand why everybody's so gloomy. We can understand... Because they're threatened with danger. They're being mistreated. They have a wicked king, a foolish king on the throne. The promise was the line of David that the king would sit on this throne forever. Ahaz looks like, well, he could be the last one, it looks like, from their perspective. But this darkness and this gloom which the people find themselves in will be transformed into joyous light by God. There's these threats to the nation around them, enemies conspiring against them, and their very existence as a nation is being threatened. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. You see, their spiritual depression will not remain. In former times, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali were brought to contempt. Though, later they will be made glorious. Now, as we read that, this seems sort of odd. You might ask, well, what is, what is being referred to? Well, first of all, Isaiah speaks here of an event which actually had not yet happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. And yet it's going to happen, and it's, he speaks as if, as if it already has happened. The northern kingdom, that is what is called Israel, will in a few short years of this prophecy, will be overrun by the Assyrian Empire. Israel will be invaded, and in 722 BC will be destroyed. And thus, they will be brought into contempt. Assyria would then repopulate that land with foreigners, the conquered people from other nations. This is why Isaiah refers to it as Galilee of the nations. Or of the Gentiles. The other nations will take the place of Israel. Of course, this is where the Samaritans come from. And so there was to be destruction and defeat. Great gloom for that northern kingdom. But out of that will come something glorious. The promised one, the Messiah, will come from that very place. Well, what's the place? Galilee. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, in the southern kingdom, meanwhile, Judah was caught up in their own national calamity. We've already uh, looked at that. We've seen the threats that are coming to them. They're, they're wicked king. And what were they to do? 
Were they to rely on their own resources? Were they to rely on human wisdom? Well, this would only lead them to, to further darkness and gloom. And there's no way out of this darkness and this gloom which the people and the land had descended into, except that God would intervene on their behalf, just as the sun intervenes on the night and brings the morning. Their gloom and their helpless estate was to be turned somehow into light and joy. And this was to be the work of God on their behalf. There was nothing they could do to bring this about. The people were to, be, were to move from being in God's displeasure to being in God's favor. And God was to supernaturally transform their situation from a total calamity into blessing and rejoicing. Whereas the people had been groping in the darkness, in the land of dark shadows, faced with an impossible situation, they were to suddenly be in God's glorious light. And this is the promise, right? This is the promise here. That they would suddenly find themselves in the very presence of God. Listen to Isaiah 42, 16. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light. The rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do I do not forsake them. Now compare that promise to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God Himself is the light who would chase out that darkness and that gloom which they, they were experiencing. And, and as is the case of their... Their spiritual darkness, sin and rebellion against God. God was going to bring light to His own enemies. He was going to transform His enemies into His people. These rebels would be set free from the shackles to sin and the deep gloom of darkness because God's light would shine upon them. And they would see the truth. And notice the sureness of the prophecy there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The anguish will be gone. The people in darkness will see a great light. And notice too that verses 1 and 2 are written in the past tense, as I've already said. It's as if Isaiah is writing history. But this is sometimes referred to as the future past. It's so sure that it can be spoken of, something in the future can be spoken of, as if it already has happened. All of the events of Isaiah, that Isaiah is outlining will occur in the future. And yet it's as if they'd already taken place. This is the way it is with God though, right? His promises, His decrees are so sure that they can be spoken of as if they had already happened. That's how sure they are. The light was to come, of course, is the promise of the Messiah, of Emmanuel. And so the gloominess of the people was to be turned into great joy. Look at verse 3. It says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And so you go from gloom to in, in multiplication and joy. The nation was to multiply in number and multiply in joy. 
And the people rejoice because, why? Because they've been set free. They've been liberated. The the triumph of God's free grace in Christ Jesus has brought many sons to glory. And the people are overjoyed by God's graciousness toward them. And so the nation grows and, and flourishes. Now this is quite a departure from the state of the covenant people since the days of Solomon. You see, after, after David, only his son Solomon ever ruled a united nation. After Solomon's death, the kingdom is torn apart. During the days of Solomon, though, there had been an enlarging of the kingdom. The borders had reached to their largest extent under Solomon's rule. But by the time Isaiah pens his prophecy during the days of King Ahaz, the kingdom had become small and weak. But under the headship of the Messiah, this great king who would come, the kingdom would be enlarged, the kingdom would be multiplied. In fact, it would become global. It would be global in its scope. Even the Gentiles would enjoy the blessings of God's covenant of grace. And so with this enlargement in kingdom scope, there is also then an increase in joy. Just as there was great joy in the harvest, or great joy when an an army defeats its enemies, there will be great joy in what God is doing. God is doing something Marvelous, because God is freeing them from the burden of the taskmaster. That's been removed. Look at at verse 4. These are allusions to God's rescue of Israel. For the yoke of His burden and His staff for His shoulder, the rod of of His oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So what is, what is pictured there are the stories, sort of in the background of that, is the stories of Exodus, right? Where they have a taskmaster. The nation will be freed from slavery in Egypt by the mighty hand of God. There's also um, the, an allusion to Judges chapter 6 and 7. Again, the people are under, uh, under tyranny. They're going to be freed by the mighty hand of God. This is in the days of Gideon. Look what God did in that day. God broke the rod of the oppressors. God destroyed the enemies of His people. And so Isaiah looks back on that history and he shows how each of these events point forward to an even greater redemption. God's not done destroying His enemies. God will bring about a greater redemption. God will rescue His people just as He had rescued His people from Egypt, just as He had rescued them from defeat uh, by the defeat of the Midians. And these things were written for our instruction, the Apostle Paul reminds us. Those in bondage, those who have been impressed by sin, those who have been under the power and forces of evil can be and are being set free by this great and mighty King. The darkened hearts of unbelief have been brought into light through Jesus Christ, who is Himself the light of the world. That's what He said of Himself, isn't it? When the Lord Jesus came in the first time, born of a woman, born under the law, He died on the cross to take away sin and death. But He will come again. He will establish His kingdom forever. And He will set the covenant people free. His people will no longer find themselves slaves or under tyranny. 
This prophecy not only looks forward to the birth of Jesus, but to the end of all things, to the eschaton, to to the end. For the Lord will subject the whole of creation to Himself. And the Savior will come as a great King, conquering all His and our enemies, making them, as it were, a footstool under His feet. That's the promise of the Scriptures. But His conquest will not be a conquest of war, it will be a conquest of peace. Thus, verse 5 is a metaphor explaining the joy of verse 3. Look at what it says. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The king will conquer as kings do, but this conquest is a different sort of conquest. It's a conquest that brings peace, not the sword. In fact, all the tools of war themselves are destroyed. The warrior's boots, the the blood-stained garments of war, these will be used as fuel for fire. This is how the Lord will put an end to all oppression. He will put an end to warfare upon which oppression rests. All the oppressor's garments are destroyed and burned. They will become useless because our war is spiritual. Consider for a moment Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, Jesus brings peace. Shalom. And you and I spread the message of peace, not through the spilling of blood, not by the sword, but through evangelism. By making disciples of the nations. The conquest of people under the banner of Christ is through the preaching of the gospel. The good news of salvation and reconciliation. So Isaiah uses a very powerful picture. If the boots and cloaks of war are destroyed, surely the weapons and those who wield them are as well. The promise of this future king is the end of all war, the end of all bloodshed. And you and I say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And so the people who were in bondage, the people who were in gloom and darkness are set free, and the oppressors and tyrants are destroyed. The King of kings will bring peace and joy. And how will this come about? How is this promise going to happen? Again, the people are in in great distress. And Isaiah is telling them, there's hope, there's hope. How is this going to happen? Verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. All the promises of this one who would conquer and rule with peace and joy will come to that darkened land, to this darkened world. It actually culminates right here. It culminates right here. And surprisingly enough, it culminates in a a child, a son. Now, of course, this shouldn't surprise us, right? This has been the the promises all along. Isn't this what was said in the garden? A seed will come. Isn't this what was told to Abraham? A son will be given. Isaac and Jacob, all of them, right? All of them. This promise was there. This is it. Now notice that the emphasis here is not on what the child would do when he grows up, but on the mere fact of his birth. 
The mere fact of his birth, the coming of a person, will result in the culmination of all of God's promises to his people. All of this culminates in the birth of this son. And the mere fact that he is born secures the results. In addition, the accent of the verse is not on to us. That's not the accent of the verse. The accent is not on us, but upon the one who comes. It's upon him. You see, the greatness of the gift is not the recipient of the gift, but rather on the one who is given. In other words, he, that is Christ, is at the center. You and I merely benefit from the blessings. This child who was to be born was to be royal in his ancestry. He was to be born of human parentage and yet given by God. Which is to say that he will not be any ordinary child. For upon this God-given child will be the government resting upon his shoulders. All that is included in executive authority will be upon him. And he will not be a mere human but human and divine. Remember, God, uh, Isaiah rather had already prophesied of a virgin giving birth. And that child was to be called what? Emmanuel. God with us. And he will be given a very special name. His name shall be called, look at verse 6, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So these, these titles underscore, they underscore the deity of this Savior child. In the promised king's fourfold name, you'll note that the first two elements match the name given earlier, Emmanuel. And the second two note the conditions that he will bring about. And so, first of all, he's called Wonderful Counselor. That is to say, he is a supernatural counselor. One who gives, rather, supernatural counsel. This title highlights the great wisdom of the king. Now this is, again, this is quite opposite of Ahaz, isn't it? Remember Ahaz, this wicked, foolish king on the throne. No, this, this one will be a supernatural counselor. He will have great wisdom. Now, if you think about, think back in uh, the history of Israel, who is considered to have the, the greatest wisdom? Generally, it's Solomon, right? Solomon is considered to have been the wisest of men. And his wisdom was from the Lord. This king will have supernatural wisdom from himself. Now, by Isaiah's time, of course, we have Ahaz again, who was a very capable and clever king, but he's not particularly wise. The child who was to be born was possessed a supernatural wisdom. He would be beyond the wisdom even of Solomon. This counselor would be a wonder because his counsel goes beyond mere human wisdom. The wisdom of kings determine how the kingdom will fare. A wise king rules his kingdom well. A foolish king brings ruin. The foolishness of Ahaz would contribute to the eventual downfall of the kingdom. But an everlasting kingdom demands divine wisdom. A wisdom from God. A wisdom from a king who is himself God. So this brings us to the second title, Mighty God. 
Now this part of the fourfold name clearly shows the divinity of this promised Messiah King. He is a mighty warrior, a mighty warrior who brings peace. He's he's able to absorb all the attacks of the enemy, of evil and sin. Everything that's thrown at him. He's able to subdue and defeat all of his enemies. This king is a strong and mighty king because he's a strong and mighty God. And the Lord was to come onto the scene, not from the skies, but to be by being born and bringing with him all the qualities which guarantee his people's preservation and liberation by his wisdom, by his warrior strength. The Savior was to be wise, strong warrior who would rescue his people because he is God and man. And this warrior king would not come in harsh power, but he would come as a father to his children. Thus, the messianic title of everlasting father. This points to the care and discipline that he will bring to his children. He is a father who is eternal. He is a father who is everlasting. Many kings throughout history have claimed to be the father to their subjects, but this king, he is a fatherly king in the most perfect way possible. His fatherhood is not temporal, rather it is eternal. The Lord as Father would provide security, care, love, discipline, all that a loving Father ought to provide for His children, but in this case, perfectly, because He's a divine Father. And finally we come to the last part of the fourfold name. This wise and strong warrior king, this fatherly king, who will bring his, will usher to His people peace. Thus, he's called the Prince of Peace. There will be no more war. The people will enjoy well-being, freedom from anxiety, goodwill, harmony in life. They will be at peace. The people will be under the full favor of God. They will be at peace with God. This is how he brings peace. No longer will there be enmity between men and God. No more will men be enemies, but the rebels will become adopted children. Adopted children who God loves deeply. The king promised by Isaiah in Isaiah would not be a king among the other kings of Israel. He wasn't going to be a king like everybody else. He wasn't going to be like, well, you know, a better version of Ahaz or something. No. No, Isaiah has in mind an eschatological person. This is the king of kings. The final king. The greatest of kings. Isaiah is pointing to the end of all things. This is the final and greatest of all kings. Of all all world leaders. Anything. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government... And of peace, there will be no end. No end to the increase of his government. There will be no end to the increase of peace. Can you imagine that? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness, 
I mean, this is what the people need right now, right? Justice and righteousness. I mean, they've got Ahaz, this fool, on the throne right now. Justice, true justice, righteousness. And, and when is this going to start? From this time forth, forevermore. Well, how long is it going to last? Well, sometimes, you know, they would get good kings and bad kings in Judah, right? Forever. And how will this happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is going to accomplish this. And so the prophet envisions the idea of a monarch of which David was but a type and a shadow. God promised to David that a king would sit on his throne forever. But at this point in time, with Ahaz on the throne, I mean, honestly, things are looking pretty bad. God had not rejected his earlier promise. God had not forgotten his people. But he would fulfill his promises despite the actions of David's descendants. Despite the wickedness of those who had come after him. God was working through history to bring about the one who would establish forever David's throne rooted in righteousness and in justice. And there will be no end to this ruler's rule. No end. He will rule with equity. He will rule with justice. He will rule with peace forever. Forever and ever. And how is this going to be accomplished? The zeal of the Lord. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is not going to come about by ordinary affairs. You know, it isn't like men could sort of, well, let's manipulate sort of things so we can get, you know, get, get this to happen. No, no. <laughs> no, the Lord is accomplishing this. And, and, and think about this. The picture which Isaiah has painted, it's, ama- it's amazing. It's astounding, isn't it? If you really think about it. And it will come about. God will rescue His gloomy people who are afraid for their own existence. And they, they see, sort of, it seems like God's promises are unraveling, right? God will do this because, he's, because of a passionate involvement for His people. He loves them. God has made a promise and God will keep that promise. And why? Because God said it so. He said it's going to happen, so it's going to happen. God is not willing to be passive while His people drifted from one false lover to another. He was zealous for His people. He was concerned for their good and for His glory. He was going to rescue His beloved from slavery and from darkness and from pain and from misery. He would usher them into the kingdom full of light, full of freedom, full of peace. This was what God was willing to do for His bride because He loved her. He loved His people. This is why Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world. This is why He was born to the Virgin Mary. This is why God the Son humbled Himself, being humiliated, being born into this lowly condition. I mean, honestly, for God to be born itself is humiliating. This is why the King of Kings and Lord of Lords suffered, was killed at the hands of wicked men because He was rescuing His beloved bride. 
He was willingly laying Himself down so that you and I could be redeemed. God was not passive. He was zealous for His people. He he will accomplish His will. He will redeem His people. He will subdue His enemies. He will rule all of creation because He's the great King. And so you can see God's faithfulness to His covenant promises, which is most supremely displayed in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is to say that God's promises are sure. Again, a theme which we've seen over and over and over again. God is accomplishing His will. And God's purpose from the very beginning was to bring salvation to all the nations. What we see here in Isaiah is a prophecy of fulfillment. The promise of a child who embodies the seed promise given to Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. The one who is to redeem his people. And one of the things I think this also shows us is the great continuity in God's covenant promises from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God's promises were the same yesterday, today, forever. In Christ, God was not doing something different, something new, but He was renewing that which we, He had said would come to pass all along from the very beginning. So the newness of the new covenant is, is that it's a fulfillment, it's a bringing to pass, it's the fullness of God's covenant promises, which result in life and salvation for you and me as we trust in Christ. And so in the midst of, of the great darkness and gloom of this sin-stained world in which we inhabit now, a great light has come. As bad as the situation was in Isaiah's day, as bad as the situation may be in our own day, in your own life, the gloom which you are experiencing. There was someone who has come to bring you joy and peace. A child was born who would grow to be a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He was and is the mighty warrior of peace who has come to set His people, His bride, free. And He will return again at the end of the age when He will usher in the fullness of the new heavens and new earth. And He will gather together all of His redeemed people on a redeemed world. As as dark as the world is that we live in today, as out of control as your life may seem to be at times, as much anxiety as you may have from the state of affairs of the world around you, take comfort, beloved Christian. Take comfort, And rest in Jesus Christ, your Savior. He is the great King. He has come to set you and me free. He set you free from slavery to sin. Repent, believe, trust, and rest in Jesus Christ alone. Because He has come to grant you peace with God. And He's returning again in glory. He will rule all the nations from the throne of David forever. Beloved, this is our great hope. This is our comfort and rest. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we thank you for your covenant promises. We thank you that Jesus was promised from the very beginning that your purposes were always to rescue your people from their sin. Help us, O God, to keep this in mind. Help us to be reminded of what you are doing, what you have done, where this whole world is going to. Help us also to be faithful to bring that peace of Christ even to the nations around us. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.